of emails and optimizing your subject lines in your copy to get the best response. I wanted to talk to Parry. I've been fascinated with this space for a, a long time because in the email world, you can just send 40% off site-wide emails and they work. And you know, I've been writing for a long time as other people have about how to optimize your emails and personalize your emails and try to move away from discounting, but it always comes back to discounting. He has ideas about how there's another way. Uh, we talk about that, we talk about uh, who actually makes that change in an organization, and we talk about during a downturn, how do you continue to invest when everyone else is pulling back uh, a fun conversation, touching on a whole bunch of topics around marketing, even if email isn't your thing. As always, I am Jared at sagelet.com. Jared at S-A-G-E-L-E-T-T.com. -E -E Here's the show. So, Parry Mom, welcome to the show. Thanks, Jared. Tell me, uh, what is Phrasey? Well, Phrasey uh, is on a mission to use state-of-the-art technology to make sure that brands can give the right message to the right person every time. Uh, so think about it like this. We've heard this uh, right message, right person, right time mantra in marketing for decades, yeah. right? Yeah, and this is nothing new. And people all, you know, they go, oh, right message, right person, right time. So the right person problem, let's focus on that for a second. That's a well-researched, it's a well-capitalized, and it's a well-distributed solution set with personalization and segmentation, and blah, blah, blah. I mean, it's not a solved problem, but everybody's got thoughts on it and a solution for it. You're going to tick that box, right? The the right time problem, I mean, with APIs and triggers, that's a, it's an engineering problem. It's been solved, right? So we tick that box too. So right now, I could log into a, to a litany of different marketing clouds, marketing automation platforms, and I could click a single button and I could send a million messages to a million people and I could pat myself on the back for being the most effective marketer of all time. But what if the message sucks? If the message sucks, then it's a big fat waste of time. And that's the problem that Crazy solves. We use state-of-the-art technology to ensure that your messages not only don't suck, but they're optimized using advanced statistics, advanced technology to make sure that you get the biggest bang for your buck when you send outbound marketing campaigns online. So I, I, I appreciate the, uh, the desire to optimize subject lines, optimize copy. I'm curious what I found back in my time on the retailer side of the world is the best subject line was when we were telling people everything was 40% off. Does does uh, does optimizing your your copy help you move away from being promotional, or does it actually just so sort of go hand in hand with you know what life is promotional? That's how it works. We can we can make that better too. Yeah, so I I totally get that, and and like the best the best subject line of all time, right, is gonna be free beer, <laughs> right, and maybe yeah. put a little like 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 beer stein emoji at the end of it just so you're down with the kids right and if you send that out you're gonna get a lot of people open on it but if you ain't giving out free beer then you're gonna erode your brand's value that's the whole problem with this this constant barrage of promotional emails where uh you're basically training your customers to only buy from you when something is hard discounted so a great example here is gap right where 
Um, if you sign up to emails from Gap, you're constantly barraged with 40% off, 50% off, buy now, buy now. It's like it's like you're dealing with an online timeshare salesman, right? And the thing is, why would you ever buy something at full price from, from Gap when you know that there's a sale around the corner? So by virtue of following this uh, short-termist uh, promotional strategy, what they're effectively doing is um, they're they're either eroding their brand value or positioning themselves as a as a hard discounter. So, what we encourage our customers to to think of is think of the trade off between short term gains and long term brand equity. You can absolutely follow a messaging strategy that drives for the the highest amount of clicks for this campaign right now, and to do that you offer a massive discount and maybe use a bunch of capitals and exclamation points and blah, 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 blah. And you can do that this time and next time and next time. And and and, and you can go for this sort of short-termist shock and awe approach, but you do that for six months, a year, two years, and your brand has been completely devalued. We believe in longitudinal optimization where brands have inherent value. Uh, the language that brands use can either reinforce or detract from a brand's equity. And we believe by coupling a longitudinal performance optimization with campaign on campaign brand adherence, you can actually get the best of both worlds. You can get a long run increase of performance without having the long run erosion of brand equity. So let's let's talk a little bit about um, about how you get that done, because I think everyone, Gap is a great example because they've just gone so far down this rabbit hole. Uh, how do you get that mindset changed? Because I think everyone at Gap would say, of course, we should be less promotional. No one's, you know, Old Navy maybe would say more promotional, but let's say Gap brand. Uh, we, we should be less promotional. But that starts nine months, a year before when you're doing your planning for next year. And then you have to buy the shirts, the number of shirts you think you're going to sell based on your promotional schedule. And you got to work with the factories to produce that. It's even if you're, your day-to-day -day contacts said, I think this is great, you still have piles of shirts in a warehouse someplace. How, how do you move that message upstream? Because I do think like your marketing manager or whoever, you know, move on up, you know, step by step by step in the organization, they'll agree. But at some point, you got to get to the top because it, it is a it really is a CEO level decision board level decision to make that shift. How do you do that? So the thing is, if you look at the vast majority of like we're talking about retailers now, so let's let, let's let's focus there. If you look at the vast majority of their investor investor prospectuses, very rarely do they mention our strategy is to be a hard discounter. If you're uh, Aldi or Little in the yep. grocery sector. I mean, that's their their business model, but you don't find that from uh, from from shopping mall brands, right? So there's some sort of a organizational disconnect between what the corporate strategy is and then how it's executed down the chain. So the 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 agent of change uh, needs to be wherever that disconnect is is happening. My my gut feeling, having dealt with with hundreds of of companies who have faced this exact challenge is the gap is usually incentive-based, where people are given targets and they need to hit those, those targets through any means necessary. Now, you absolutely could do it um, by following a longitudinal strategy. And it's not as though you get short-term pain. There's still campaign-to-campaign -campaign, um, optimizations which can be done to like, equal that shock and awe thing. 
except that it's sustainable and actually grows over time. Whereas if you go for the shock, shock and, and awe approach, you get this, this sort of initial uplift and then it goes down. Um, and if you don't, and, and, and if you never stop doing it, you reach a sort of local minima. Whereas if you start here and you progressively and continuously get better and better using a longitudinal optimization model, then you actually converge upon a, a local maximum. We've seen it dozens and dozens of times. People are addicted in email marketing, particularly to hard discounting. It's a tough addiction to yep. give up. But once you do, you're free from the shackles of that addiction and you can live your life. And I, what, I, I only have one, one really good example of the sort of shock and awe approach that worked. So Coach went through this and they, in the late 2000s, 2000 zeros, whatever, the aughts, uh, and into the early 2010s became a discounter and flooded the market with outlet product and made outlet website. And basically after the, uh, the financial crisis, board level decision, enough is enough. It's going to be, we're going to have a very difficult 12 to 18 months as we fix this. It came out of it much stronger, right? I, I feel like my takeaway from that is you need to take a a, a, a situation like we're in right now where not a crisis exactly, but there's some upheaval. This is the time when companies can say, okay, you know, we have a little bit of leeway to make a change because we're going to get dinged kind of no matter what happens, right? It's seemingly we're in a point now where nobody seems to be immune. So why not take this opportunity to say like, okay, we're going to reset. Like I, once you're 40% all the time, 50% all the time, 60% off all the time, there's, there's only so many percent. I feel like this is a time to reset. Totally. And there's, there's been study after study done about um, uh, uh, advertising investment cycles um, and, and how they correlate with um, economic cycles. And time and time again, what people do, and, and, and let's call a spade a spade, we are in recession now. It's just it hasn't made the front page of the Wall Street Journal yet. But we effectively are. Inflation skyrocketing. Um, uh, with, with 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 salary pressures on, um, with uh, with the um, supply chain pressures being faced throughout the world for for various reasons, we effectively are in the next you know three to six months are probably going to be a little bit gnarly. So what we we can learn from history, and this was correct in 1982, 1992, uh, 2000, and 2008, where if you look at the relationship between um, the the delta in advertising budgets when uh, when when downturns first kicked in versus uh, N plus three year out market share. The companies who cut advertising budgets as a knee jerk reaction at the start of downturns came out of them very weak and lost market share. The companies who actually uh, bought the dip, who, who turned into the skid and actually invested in advertising and marketing during those periods actually grew market share. Now. You can only do that if you're in a uh, fortunate uh, position of liquidity. Um, and if you do have product lines, which are fundamentally counter cyclical, but the numbers don't lie. Um, you, you, you turn into a skid, you don't turn yeah. away from it. If you turn away from it, you're going to go off the road. Yeah, this is the kind of the Warren Buffett approach uh, to, to use the fear in the market as an opportunity. Are the clients or prospects that you speak with, do 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 they see that? Because I, I completely agree with you that this is absolutely the time to invest, even though it is painful and it's going to force you 
to rejigger your business in some other way, right? Like there, there's no way to get through this pain free. But I, I don't laugh, I cringe every time we go through something like this and you see companies in their quarterly earnings say things like, oh, we're going to pull back, we're gonna close stores and push to online as a way to grow. Like that's not a thing. Pulling back on your marketing and then growing, that's not a thing. That is how you shrink. There is, that isn't a thing. You're, you're absolutely right. You know, um, if like, like the, the, the best example we've got for it is the um, COVID blip. And I, I hesitate to call uh, um, early 2020 a recession because it wasn't, it wasn't structural. It was imposed. But the economic impact is, is, is analogous to yep. um, previous downturns. So, so we've been working with a company in the UK called Curry's. You probably don't know Curry's, but basically um, think of Best Buy with a British accent, right? Where it's a, it's a 10 billion pound company, absolutely huge on, on every high street throughout the entire country here. Um, and when COVID first hit, like they have a huge in-store presence. They had a sort of like, like middling online presence. They basically phoned us up and said, our, like we are, we are moving to online at a record pace and you're going to help us do it. We were like, what? That sounds like fun. Great. And what they found is that their, their market share expanded so rapidly that now that they're back to normal, their footfall in-store has actually increased. Mm. They've invested even further, um, and their their overall market share is, is absolutely storming it. And, and, and the results which they give to the city now are absolutely huge also. So like, like what that shows is um, fortune favors the brave. Right. And, yep, and you can either cower away and wait for a storm to pass. Um, but risk of your house being ripped up by a tornado. I'm, I'm going hard on metaphors today. Can you tell? <laughs> yeah, no, <laughs> it's, a, it's a podcast about language. So, yeah, no, you got to go hard on the metaphors. I would have called you out if you didn't. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I, look, I think there's no other choice. I think if you shrink in this period, you are in trouble in 24 months. You are. There, there's, there, is, there is no example I can think of of shrinking your you know, Simpsons line, you know, smoke yourself thin. There, there's no way of shrinking yourself profitable. Like you can't. It does not work that way. That's just not well, how it you, works. You, you absolutely can't, right? Like, like, I mean, if Frazy wanted to, we could, we could like uh, go for an EBITDA maximization strategy. And within a, a couple of quarters, we would have, you know, a net positive EBITDA in the, in the multi-millions, right? Um, like that's certainly a strategy which you can't follow, but there's an opportunity cost for it. What that means is that you're you're not investing in growth, right? So if 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 growth matters to you, you know, there there's there's this old adage in in SaaS particularly, the the rule of 40, right? And yep. and and in the back of the napkin calculation is your year-on-year -year growth minus your um EBITDA, right? Or you can spot do it on a month-to-month -month basis, right? And 40 is the sort of benchmark. Very few companies ever actually exceed 40 because it's exceedingly difficult to grow at a good pace and not lose a bunch of money. And we've seen this trend exacerbated um, by the, the absolutely crazy valuations and the amount of, of, um, of VC pumped into startups who, who may not have a sustainable business model. I mean, what, what was that one, the uh, one-click checkout company oh, that just went bust yeah, fast? fast. Yeah, fast. And, and, and they had revenues that were like like a fraction of Frazy's revenues, and yet they had raised one hundred and ten million dollars. It's it's yeah. it's absolutely mad. So like like I've always personally been an advocate of raising as little money as possible at as low a valuation which is reasonable, 
to grow the business as quickly as possible. And then, and that's what we've done. Like, like in the last uh, seven years, we, we raised a total of 6 million quid, uh, which is what, like, like $8 million Our like return on capital is like a multi X off the back of that. And what it means is that now, now we're, we're in a spot where, where if a, if a downturn hits, it's okay. Like, like we've actually been through two massive blips. Like first was um, Brexit and Brexit. I mean, you've probably heard about it. It's like the, oh, yeah. the greatest global example of self-imposed isolationist ma- uh, masochism ever mm. in the history of geopolitics. You're an anti-Brexit guy. The fact that I, I live in the UK and I'm a filthy job-stealing immigrant might <laughs> be a contributing factor um and and then COVID, right and by virtue of of always having a sort of um discipline about uh um not trying to to raise good money after bad and to be very very judicious about who we give points on the cap table to has actually put us in in good stead we could have absolutely grown faster um but at what cost we could have absolutely had higher valuations but at what cost Oh, there's a, there's a complete, this is like a whole other conversation. There's such a lack of alignment between founders who are in it for the long game and VCs funding it, right? That essentially VCs are saying, here's all the money you could possibly want at this insane valuation because we know we have to give it to you or you'll go someplace else, but we need you to sprint. And hope, you know, you can sprint for 100 meters, you can sprint for 200 meters, maybe you can sprint for 400 meters. You can't sprint for half a mile. You can't sprint for a year. And the, the question is, do you get bought? At what point during that, or do you run out of steam? And like that's the game, and it doesn't matter because they have 27 different companies doing that. You only have one, and as I like to say here, they already have a house, a beach house in the Hamptons, and you don't. So the, it, you're not aligned. And so yes, you've taken kind of this rare approach, but I think we're seeing now all of these companies that raised all these money is all these monies, all this funding at these insane valuations are now sprinting past the half mile mark, and I don't know what the hell happens because you're kind of screwed. Well, we're we're starting to see it now. I mean, in in February, you remember Hop In, who are the yeah, uh, yeah. darlings of COVID, uh, raised at insane valuations, um, and and they let go 150 people in February. Just this week, uh, Klarna, uh, the um, buy now, yeah. pay pay later company, have let go about 500 people globally. Um, we're going to start seeing more stories like this, where where they. Like the the appetite to raise at crazy valuations has effectively dried up. The uh, Tiger Global effect has has run yeah. its course. Let's say. Oh and- yeah, no, a friend of mine was an early stage employee <laughs> at a company that just raised, just announced a round, and so they must have had the negotiations, you know, two months ago. So the valuation was not where you would expect it to be, is higher than you would expect now. And so he's like, oh, I got to get dump these shares, and there's literally no secondary market for it. It's gone. And, and like that's yeah. that's the reality of it. You can people can announce whatever they want the valuation is, but it's not really because no one no one believes that it's actually worth that. Sorry, I I just lost my video there for a second. I'm oh. quite sure what happened there, but anyways, let's carry on. Yeah, so we can stop talking about that. So, so I, I do want to go back to uh, to the, uh, the the point around you. I've seen you talk in the past about uh, brand language. I'm curious, like, what is what is brand language? Is it is it the way that like human? The, I have things that I say, ways that I speak. You had mentioned you speak in metaphors. That maybe that's your brand. Is is that what you're talking about? Is like what is brand language? Sort of. So, like, if if you think about uh, uh, 
brands who advertise to you, right? They all have a certain way of talking. They all have a persona which they've created, right? Um, and and um, sorry, I just need to fix. I got this weird peripheral problem. You might need to cut this part out. Sorry, but not a, no, not a problem at all. Weird peripheral problem where I tried to turn on a peripheral light and then it messed up my thing. Turned my camera off um, <laughs> and then it unplugged my good microphone. So for a second there, I think I was on my laptop microphone. The sound should be better now, though. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's a little better. Yeah, sorry about that. Oh, no, no problem. I just it's because we buy these like crappy peripherals. I'm like, what? Why are we buying the worst peripheral possible? You know. <laughs> Anyways, sorry. What 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 was the the, the the Oh, I was asking you about uh brand language and and kind of how you, how you think about that. Right. So here's here's the thing about brand language. If you think about any brand who you interact with, they spend millions, billions of dollars on um on uh, conveying their their brand message, their brand voice, their brand ideals to to customers every year. Um, you know, like like great examples would be, you know, you think about uh, Walgreens, right? Uh, you think about um, uh, like loads and loads and loads of, of of brands, and you think of them, and they evoke a certain thought, a certain feeling. And if they were to talk to you in a very weird way, it would feel abnormal, right? Um, like if you, it, so what brand language effectively is is it's a dictionary, it's a lexicon. Of, of language that uh, that that brands use, it's a series of of sentiments. It's it's a series of you know things like like structure and syntax that uh, reflect um, what a brand's position in the market is, both current and and aspirational. So you think about it, you know, um, brands spend millions and millions and millions of dollars on advertising every year, and it goes back to this hard discounting point we were talking about a minute ago, right? Where if you spend millions and millions of dollars trying to build up your your brand to be like 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 on that matrix positioned here, and then suddenly you you send out um, like marketing messages to your customers going like half off right now, buy now, buy now, buy now. You're actually like eroding all that information you did. So what a brand voice actually is um, is it's it's basically a a set of it's 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 a rule set, a guide, um, to explain how a brand should be talking, and when you couple that um, with performance optimization, you get this very special quadrant where it's like you're adhering to the brand's voice uh, to make sure that uh, that that any messaging does not erode its core values, its core equity, while at the same time uh, maximizing the response which you get from said messages, and that's the sort of um, Valhalla towards which uh, digital marketers should be aspiring. You can get performance cheaply. We've spoken about yeah, that. Yeah. You can get brand voice very expensively at the opportunity cost of performance. The sweet spot has to be um, maximizing both. Um, and doing that manually is very, very difficult. So that's exactly why Freezy exists, to be honest, because if you um, try and do it manually, you're you're going to fall back on on one or both of those categories. Whereas if you can automate it and use data to back up decisioning, um, then you can maximize both of them. So can you talk a little bit about how that works in practice? Because I think one of the questions I've always had around this is how does 
AI, machine learning, whatever you want to call it, uh, the optimization engine work within the parameters of the brand language. Because I can I can understand how you come up with the best subject line for 40% off sweaters, you know, and, and I understand how you optimize that roughly. I don't understand, I don't really have a concept for how that works when that's not what you're doing. When you're, when you're saying like, okay, whatever, whatever it is, where it's not discounting, uh, and you have a lexicon uh, for a brand and a voice and all of that. How how does that mesh with the AI piece of it? How does that work? Yeah, so so there's sort of like two different ways that 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 people have looked at at this problem. There's the sort of uh, more sort of um, old-fashioned brute force way, and then there's the sort of more more graceful state of the art way, which obviously crazy operates in. <laughs> um, so in in the first way, right? Um, what you could do is you could hire a, a thousand monkeys on a thousand typewriters and you could create a huge database of language. And then you could figure out um, over time which language is generically good, which language is generically bad. And then you could offer access to that big generic centralized database to a whole bunch of customers at the same time. Now, <clears throat> what you will get with that in the short term is this this shock and awe thing you will get um immediate uplifts um but in the long term what you get is uh is brand homogenization and everybody winds up sounding the exact same and you get this sort of long-term um anesthesis towards this previously high performing language so that's certainly one way from a technology standpoint you can solve this this problem <coughs> <clears throat> Excuse me, I am not dying. It's just a cold. Um, <laughs> we'll cut that out. So, um, right. So that's the a, a sort of very brute force. Um, let's call it like a 2010 technology to actually achieve this goal. But if we fast forward, there's actually a much better way of doing things. Um, and that's realizing that every single brand is different. They're different in terms of the voices we were just talking about, but they're different in terms of their context also. So if you're if you're selling pizza, or if you're selling fridges, or if you're uh, delivering new pharmaceuticals to doctors, which are three use cases that Frazy customers use us for, those are three fundamentally different use cases that cannot draw upon a generic database. Um, Partially for common sense reasons, the yeah. context is different, and partially for governance reasons also, where, where, where there's different uh, compliance protocols which need to be followed in different markets as well. So a more state-of-the-art approach is to actually construct uh, language models on a brand-to-brand -brand basis that take into account the brand voice, the uh, informational specificity required uh, to have high control over the language which is, which is used, um, and also contextual sensitivity. Uh, where you know times change, you can't have a static database. Yep. Um, things need to change. You know, I mean, imagine um, now sending out a message. Uh, you, you know, if you're a retailer, going, "Oh wow, this deal is going viral." <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. So, so the world changes, language changes. It's flexible. So, so the way that that phrasing works is we construct with with white gloves this language model um, on a brand to brand basis. Um, and then that effectively generates language in real time. You click a button, it generates it in real time. I don't understand why technology should not do anything in real time. Everything should be real time. And if it's not, one must ask the question, is it really technology? 
once you click, uh, it's actually in our platform. It's called the magic button. Like it's kind of mad that it's still called the magic button. You click the magic button, it generates a bunch of language, which is you know brand specific, context specific, uh, informationally specific, um, and and that's cool. It can say the same thing in a million different ways, whether it's forty percent off shoes or here's the the um, the the latest information on clinical trials for this latest di diabetes drug, right? You can say each of those things in, in a million ways, um, which is very, very powerful, but it's actually not that useful by itself. What you then need to do is run it through a performance prediction algorithm, which is a fancy deep learning engine we built um, that at scale and highly accurately can tell you what language is gonna be good, mm -hmm. what language is going to be bad. Um, and when you combine those sort of two aspects, the ability to generate um, very controlled, very specific language, with the ability to highly accurately predict what language is going to be good, what language is going to be bad, the end product is a small amount of powerful language that customers can then use in, in their marketing campaigns. So effectively, that's how Frazy works. There's a bunch more bells and whistles yeah. and technology and stuff and it's fully automated, blah, 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 blah. But in a nutshell, that's effectively it. I, I actually like the word magic, even as an external facing term for some of the things tech companies do. Bluecore used it. It was one of their core values was, I think, uh, magically simple. And because if technology isn't magical in some way, then why are you, then it's work. And then like, well, I can just hire people to do it. Like it should be well, magical. Yeah. You should push a button and get a million answers and then, you know, narrow it down to the six that might work. Like that's magic. You can't do that. I, I, I constantly hear about tech companies, like some of which operate in crazy space and, 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 and some of which operate in, in myriad spaces throughout the ecosystem where they, they claim to be technology, but then the users can't actually just click a button and make it happen. And when, when that happens, I got to sort of wonder, like, what's actually happening? Is it technology or is it effectively um, a, a services agency mm. underpinned by, yeah. by a layer of, of, of tech? And I sometimes wonder if, if people are being missold a bill of goods across the tech industry in general. If you can't click a button and make it happen, is it really technology? Oh, you think that software companies might be overselling their product? What? I mean, I mean, not you guys, not. but other other people. What? Uh, <laughs> one question though, around around what you're saying uh, around brands and the language. One of the issues I've seen in the past is, especially in fashion, but I think it's probably true broader, but let's say in fashion, brands will have a visual language. When there's a Ralph Lauren ad, I can recognize it as a Ralph Lauren ad without there being a logo or horse on it. But they don't have a language language. They have a visual language. And I don't, I don't know what they could write where I would say, oh, well, obviously that's Ralph Lauren. How do you, how do you work with brands or do you even need to work with brands? I guess that's really the question. If you don't have a, a language around copy because you're more visually, uh, your brand comes across more visually, like where do you, how do you deal with that? Where do you start? Do you need to deal with it? Yeah. So brands absolutely do. Every single one does, but they haven't, uh, generally they haven't codified, right? Because it, it's very difficult to actually do, you know, with, with pictures, you, you, um, you, you've got this sort of, um, uh, it's, it's, uh, Gestalt was an old, uh, German artist yep. and his, his whole theory, right. Is that the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. And if you, you, you look at a picture of like a horse, you see a horse, but if you zoom in and it's made up of a whole bunch of little cows that have been formed into a horse shape, you don't see the cows, you know, the cows are there. 
but you look at the horse itself. So to create a rule set in terms of, of imagery, it's actually quite straightforward. It's like use pink, don't use green. Put a picture of a horse, don't put a picture of a cow. It's actually quite straightforward. With language though, um, there are so many uh, uh, ways of saying the, the exact same thing. Um, and there's so many words that need to be used in very, very specific contexts. It's much more difficult. And, and, and people have a hard time of codifying this stuff. You've probably seen um, uh, brand guidelines throughout the years, with, which, which, which will say, oh, our tone of voice is jovial. It's great. But, but what does that actually mean? So what, what we've done is we actually take those guidelines that brands or brands agencies often create. And we actually are, have the ability to codify that into um, a linguistic rule set. Um, and, 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 and this is actually a very unique thing because then uh, at source of generating language, we can then use that rule set as a filtering agent to make sure the language which is outputted actually adheres to those brand guidelines. What, what happens internally is People use those brand guidelines as persuasion tools and they can write anything and they can find a reason to justify why it yep. adheres to brand values. Yep. Um, whereas by codifying it and using a company like Crazy to actually generate language, your brand language actually gets more compliant, not less. Hmm. And this is a bit of a, a mind bender, um, but it's for those reasons that I've just stated. That's that's really interesting because I, I do think that's a real challenge. I, I it's I haven't seen a lot of successful examples of if, of visually striking brands that have also later on tacked on language and maybe this is the future. But yeah, so so I, I I totally get that perception. But here's the thing: you cannot buy something online without interacting with language. You can buy something online without interacting with imagery. Yeah, it's true. Uh, last question, well, then I'll let you go back to work here. Do you use this in marketing phrasy? This is, uh, you know, I, I, I'm in this, at this point, I'm mostly talking to software marketers who, whose language is an abomination. Typically, do you, use, do you use these principles when you're actually marketing yourself? So phrasy's technology itself is, is built for large B2C enterprises. So it's not built mm. for um, B2B uh, uh enterprise SaaS firms, um, because it takes a lot of data to, to build models. Um, and we simply do not have, have access to that data. But absolutely, do we take some of the anecdotal findings um, from, from, from our, our software and uh, apply it to our outbound comms? We absolutely do. I've often thought it would be very cool if we could build a Phrasey for companies like Phrasey. Um, but maybe next year. I've got a lot on this year. Perfect. Perry, really welcome. Uh, thank you so much for the time. Really appreciate it. Right on. Thanks. Thanks.